Real Cuff Radio is about to begin. Everybody loves a hero. I believe there's a hero in all of us. Hello, welcome to Real Cuff Radio. And tonight I have the pleasure of introducing Rebecca Pratt. I read her book, Inspired to Action, and felt it was a must that uh, in life we could be encouraged, we could be challenged, and even inspired to see through her life what just one person could do. Rebecca? Yes. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you so much. And if you don't mind, I'd like you to just take over and tell us how um, a a lot of this stuff that you wrote in your book and even more, um, how you even got to this point in life. Yeah, so my husband and I, we married young. I was 20, he was 22, and we both had done a discipleship training school with Youth with the Mission before we were married. So coming together, we kind of always had a dream to do some sort of missions as a family once we started having kids. And so 10 years into our marriage, we had three kids, and we felt strong that God was calling us into missions. We started with Mercy Ships, um, worked with them for eight years, uh, came in to work with them uh, in 1998, and we started just in their discipleship training school. My husband um, led the schools for six years there at the Texas um, U.S. campus, and then we went on board one of their ships, uh, the Anastasis, for two years with our three kids, and that was kind of a crazy adventure that um, rocked our world in a whole new way. We um, really just, our heart just broke for what was happening, um, you know, not only with the patients on the ship, but then off the ship and what we saw. And um, we particularly were drawn to the children in the orphanages. Um, We started in Benin, West Africa, and then sailed to Liberia. So those two countries in particular were ones that um, we just, yeah, started seeing all these children in distress and directors of orphanages that didn't know how to handle all of the kids that they were responsible for. And so that was just kind of how our entrance into um, Africa came. And after spending two years on uh, one of that on that ship, the Anastasis, we felt strong that God was calling us into um, to do more with orphans in particular. So we did a little bit on the side while we were with Mercy Ships and um, on the weekends, and then um, we took it to you know the leadership of Mercy Ships and said, this is what we feel like, you know, God is calling us into and could we do it within Mercy Ships or is this something that we need to start our own ministry for? And they, you know, were very gracious. We still have a great relationship with them, but they were saying, you know, it's something that we um, can't do within Mercy Ships. Um, We felt strong that God was calling us to work with orphans that no one knew what to do with. Um, children in the most distressing situations 
Um, and uh, so that's really how we um, started Orphan Relief and Rescue. Um, we have been doing this now for seven or let's see, actually eight years. We're going on eight years. 2007 is when we um, brought Orphan Relief and Rescue into existence. And primarily um, after the ship time, after our eight years with Mercy Ships, we really didn't have a desire to start our own ministry because we were pretty tired after eight years of ministry. And um, we have some dear friends that had a ministry going called Sharing International that said, you know what, you can get started under our ministry, and then if you grow out of our ministry, we will help you, you know, start your paperwork and, and do what needs to be done to, to create your own. And so um, Don and Andrea Clark, uh, who live in Texas, they actually, um, yeah, helped us get started. And um, Matt LePage is another um, co-founder that he um, came with us from Mercy Ships. He was working with us in Mercy Ships. And so there was um, three of us, and then Don and Andrea came on board to help us with um, getting it all started and implemented. And, yeah, so that's kind of the foundation of how we got started. I remember in reading your book, so that did you kind of stumble across this? Just what were you doing in Benin and how did you come upon that first orphanage? And I remember reading that your heart just broke and you were, you were basically talking about, you know, I can't do this, Lord. I don't have time. Yeah. I don't know how I'm going to do this. <laughs> and I, I don't know what to do. Yeah. And, and yeah. you said in here that God was just really looking for a person just to say yes. Yes. Yeah, so for me, um, you know, being a mom of three kids, um, our daughter was 16 on the ship, our oldest, and then a 13-year-old daughter and a 10-year-old son who were on the ship with us. And so I was you know, part-time mom and part-time, um, we ran a discipleship training school. Um, we were co-leaders um, with that uh, school on board when we were in Benin. And so the team that we sent on their two-month field assignment upcountry, we um, sent them off. And normally, you know, we definitely were saying goodbye because our time after our um, three-month lecture phase was over, you know, then we send them out on their own. So they kept emailing every other day telling us of these starving kids up country that they didn't know what to do with and they just were in distress and they needed advice and, you know, the kids didn't have water. They would walk, you know, three and a half kilometers each way to get water and then they said they had no food and, you know, these kids were just starving little kids. And so my husband and I, after about three weeks of these emails, we thought we just need to go and see these kids and see if we can just advise the team that's up there, you know, to see what they're talking about. So we took the three-hour trek from the ship and yeah, we're just absolutely shocked at what we saw. These little sickly kids, 109 of them in this small little 
building they were just, you know, barely squeezed into this little three-bedroom mud hut. And so it wasn't a mud hut. It was like a mud house um, is what it was. So it had a, you know, a tin roof on it and, and so forth. But, you know, that was where this one little boy just captured our heart where he was just waddling along a little two to three-year-old hands behind his back, descended stomach, severely malnourished. And he just stretched like a king. And I just felt like God was just speaking to me saying, without intervention, this little boy's dead. And looking into his hollow little eyes, I just get his image out of my mind when we left. And the hard part is that they were renting a facility. They were, um, you know, not, we couldn't really do upgrades with that existing home without the landlord increasing their rent, which they were only paying $10 a month, you know, to, to live there. And the director said he only had enough money for, you know, one little bit of rice once a day for each child. And, um, yeah, so it was just completely traumatizing. So when we went back to the ship, that's when my sleepless nights began. And, I could not get these kids out of my mind, and I felt like God was asking me personally to um, go and find a new place for them to live, set up a feeding program, um, get them medical help, and um, implement this two-year plan that I kept feeling like was going over and over in my mind. And so my pushback to the Lord was, Lord, we don't have extra money. You know, we're just barely surviving as a family on the ship. And, yeah, this is like I'm a mom, you know, and I have a job on the ship. And, you know, there's already a team out there. And But the Lord wouldn't let me sleep. And so for five days, sleepless nights, um, I finally just said, okay, Lord, I will go if my boss on the ship, you know, gives me, lets me get out of my job duties for 10 days, as well as the ship was sailing in two weeks. So I didn't have much time to implement anything. And um, as well as, you know, this plan was a $22,000 two-year plan to get them, find them a place to live, put them on a feeding program, and implement, um, you know, just the daily runnings of taking care of them for two years. And then I figured, you know, we could figure out what to do after that. But um, yeah, so that's how it began. And of course, our boss on the ship said, yes, go. My husband said, go. The team on the ground um, in this area, three hours away, was all excited. They said, yes, please come and do what you can. And um, and then I got a translator that was educated in um, three different languages of the area, plus English. And he agreed to go. So God worked everything out, and as we were driving out um, from the ship, I literally said, God, I only have to offer you my hands, my feet, my mouthpiece. I have no money. I have nothing else, <laughs> nothing else except, you know, what, what I'm taking with me physically and my body and my translator, and I felt like the Lord was like, yeah, that's all I need. Just walk. Walk forward. And within five days, we raised um, $22,000 that came in. That's awesome. And, yeah, and 
you know, the, the mayor and his uh, right-hand man, you know, we had told them he, they were the first ones that we went to their office to say, you know, this is what we'd like to do. And they said, oh, that's wonderful. This is great. And I said, now that the only thing is, is we don't have the money up front and this is something we're trusting God for. And uh, the mayor looked at me and he goes, you don't have any money? How are you going to do this? I said, well, we're just having faith that God's going to provide. Um, and he says, oh, he says, Rebecca, things don't happen quickly in Africa. What you're expecting is, is not something that happens in Africa. And I said, well, the ship sails in two weeks, so God's got two weeks to, to work with. And he just shook his head, you know, back and forth. He's like, oh, my goodness, you know. So God did this whole crazy miracle. Within 10 days, we had all these kids completely removed into this beautiful um, two-building facility, one for boys, one for girls, and running water, electricity, toilets. Um, it was just a beautiful... Um, all the necessities. Yeah. Yes, everything that they you know needed. That and then, we take for granted. Yep, and then a food was delivered once a month to them, and medical checks were given to them, immunizations, you know, everything. And so it was a two-year plan that, um, you know, I had just set up before we sailed away. And, uh, yeah, the project director and the mayor of the town, they just were like, this is unbelievable. This, we have never seen this happen in this area before things like this just don't happen. And I says, well, this shows the value that God has on these children. <laughs> so, God you know, it, was really, that. it was really cute mm-hmm. when you wrote in the book too, when you said that when you were younger, I forget what age you said. I don't know if you said you were six or eight or something, but you said you were younger that you had saw that on TV about the starving mm-hmm. kids. Yep. And I believe yep. your dad said, oh, no, no, that's too much for you to watch and went to turn it off. But you had yep. said in your heart, if I'm given the opportunity, I want to help them, children, those children. Mm-hmm. And then when you were there, I loved how you wrote that you remembered that dream. Yep. And that yep. God said it wasn't, it wasn't even your dream all along, but that was his mm-hmm. dream. Yeah. And I thought, wow, that just kind of really enlarged. Here we think that it's mm. even ours, and and that, yeah. and then the miracle of getting you all of that done in two weeks. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it was such a huge, you know, shocking that miracle. More like a six month, uh, you know, six <laughs> months to a year project of just lining up. I felt up like it every was six person. months. <laughs> Well, there you go. You felt like it was six months. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Every day was so packed and full. And, you know, it's just emotionally, yeah, it it felt like it took a lot longer than 10 days. But, yeah, God just blew us away every single day. Just beautiful things, even right down to the donations that came in. Um, There was Peace Corps workers that worked in the area that we were linking with to oversee you know, just all of the stuff we were implementing because they were going to be there uh, left behind. And it was actually the Peace Corps parents that each donated $5,000 each um, because they wow. had heard about these kids and they, they didn't have, you know, they didn't know the Lord. 
but they had heard about these suffering kids and they couldn't help them through their Peace Corps children because they couldn't funnel money at that time through Peace Corps. And so they were just so excited to hear that something was going to be done for these kids. And they literally, you know, one after the next calls and they said, well, we want to send you 5,000. Then the next, we want to send you 5,000. And, you know, just, it was just amazing. It was like everything was just already set up in the heavenlies to just have somebody walk forward and implement what needed to happen. And, yeah, I literally was in tears every day, every phone call, every email where somebody was saying, you know, I've been wanting to give for a year to this but haven't had no channel to do it, and now I can give, you know. And, Definitely. Uh, yeah, it was beautiful. I just want to uh, also say that I know we're not talking a lot about each particular situation that you went through, but in your book, you do really outline every step and the details, and there's pictures and and just really the when you walked up what the situation was for the children, what they were living in, and um, even as far as I have to say at the beginning when you started out the book, it was kind of a gut, gut-wrenching gut thing right away when you mentioned how it was the voodoo capital. Yeah. And, but, yeah. But the sacrifices that go, that, that just turned, I was like, did not expect that at all and went, oh, we don't yeah. even think about things like that going on in here in the United States, but they are yeah. going on. Yeah. I, oh, I was like, I was like, oh, I don't know about the rest of this book after I read that one. But I realized, <laughs> hey, we, you know, just because yeah. it might not be going around on right here, yeah, doesn't mean that we should turn our head and not realize that. Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. I, I could only yeah. imagine how much you were going there and then hearing these horrific stories. Yeah, it is unbelievable what happens in these voodoo areas. You know, so they claim this area is the birthplace of voodoo where, you know, voodoo was created. And then it's interesting because the Beninois, when the French came and took the slaves from Benin, they took them to Haiti, and Haiti was the holding area for the Beninois slaves. So Ooh. the Haitian voodoo comes from Benin, where they say is the birthplace of where it was all created. And it's also the birthplace of where slavery began as well. And it's all oh, connected. Yep. That's symbolic. Yeah, so I said, well, is the slavery connected to the voodoo and, and the, this guy who was, he's like a tour guide there, but he's like, yes, because it's all connected because the grandmothers, when the, their um, children would be stolen from their homes in the middle of the night, the grandmothers would chase them down to the, the shore of the beach where they were being taken on ships. And the grandmothers could not bless them um, or pray to God because they would have to bless their life and forgive them. And so they wanted to do something so evil and create something so evil to curse these people that had taken their kids. 
And so that's where voodoo was created. And it was all to do the, the, the worst, most possible things that you could do, you know, to harm someone. And uh, so they created the potions and the voodoo dolls and the curses and, you know, everything else to curse the French. And then the French had to learn voodoo to counteract it. And so it's interesting because in New Orleans, the whole French quarter, you know, came from the French and their voodoo was learned from the Beninois slaves. It's just crazy. The whole, the whole intertwined, you know, spiritual darkness and, and the roots of it is just That's interesting because I had no idea where even slavery started. I mean, I knew it came from Africa, but I didn't know that that it was from that particular country. Yeah, I mean, you know, the African slavery, they say, was birthed, you know, in Benin. But obviously, all the way back in Bible times, you know, there was slavery. Yeah happening, but um, from the Africa trade slaves, you know, or trade days to America and to Europe, it was actually, you know, that was the men was the starting point to the African trade, um, basically. Yeah, very, very interesting, all of that. And did you happen to uh, be born into a missionary family, or how did you ever pick Mercy ships? Yes. So my father, yep, my mom and dad, they were missionaries in Mexico um, until I was eight. And so we were dragged around Mexico when I was young, and there's five of us siblings. And we, yeah, just were very tenderized towards the things of the Lord and seeing God do uh, miracle after miracle in people's lives from a very young age. And my dad was an evangelist that, um, you know, he would have crusades and healing ministry services and um, show the Jesus film and, you know, have lots of people come to Christ. And so that's how we, that's our roots of how we grew up. And, you know, we, we never doubted that God was a powerful an incredible God that was always after redeeming, restoring, and rescuing people's lives. And so, yeah, our parents fostered that in, you know, in, in our upbringing. And so for us, you know, we were just tenderized for others at a very young age. And then as we, you know, came into an age where we could do missions ourselves, you know, the youth with the mission was very appealing, you know, for their five-month mission program, and it seemed adventurous. And so I did mine um, on board the Anastasis ship when I was 19 and um, did the three-month training on the ship, and then we went off the ship for our field assignment. And, yeah, so it was just uh, when we got married, my husband, his family is very mission-minded as well, and so it was just a natural thing to want to go into missions, you know, as a married couple, we, we really thought we would just go in for two years. We'd have a great family mission experience for two years. And now, you know, it's 17 years later. So (laughs) it's uh, become quite a life mission. Uh, God doesn't let us just do two years. He 
for us, it was just getting us there. And uh, I could handle the two-year thought in my mind. I couldn't handle more than that. And the Lord knows what we can handle. So Yeah, so it. he's really not giving you uh, <laughs> one foot in front of the other daughter. Don't worry about the whole picture. Just one moment at a time. That's right. That's right. How do you yeah. find uh, your children as they're growing up? Do you, uh, even on the ship, yeah, so they had they great experience. Were they themselves? Yeah. Yes. So, of course, the 16-year-old, um, let's see, she was 14 when we left for the ship, and she kicked and screamed and thought we were horrible parents for taking her away from her friends, you know. So that, that was the beginning. But once the kids were on the ship and established friendships on the ship and there's a Christian school on board and all that, then... Um, then it, you know, it was a, it was an adventure for them too, because they got to travel all over and, and all that. So it was harder for Tim and I, because you lose a sense of your family, because you live in community in a small little cabin and the children, you know, your kids just always want to be out with the other kids. They don't want to be in the cabin with you. So we really lost our sense of family structure within um, our two years on the ship. So that was hard for Tim and I. Um, Are you talking I, about just mainly like when you live in, in a home, you do things as a family in your home and they're not just having enough room to just be your family? Yes. Is that what you mean by that? Yeah, yeah. You lose that sense of, well, the kids never want to be in the cabin with you because your cabin is so small. So, you know, you go to bed and sleep there. That's basically your bunk that you're sleeping there. But, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, we, we lost that. The, the kids really didn't care to be around mom and dad. They'd rather be out, outside the door with their friends. <laughs> so Yeah. You also 40, have that at that age, friends. though, too. Even yes. living in a suburban neighborhood or so forth, you know, kids want to be yeah. with their friends when they get to be a certain age and doing stuff. Yes. Yeah. So, but that is an yeah. Interesting point. So it, it's just different. Yeah. So it was t- Tim and I, we um, it was a phenomenal ministry time, but very hard personal time. You know, as uh, stretching, trying to keep the family, yeah, keep the family unit as a family unit. But, um, but yeah, God burst everything that we're doing today from that two years um, time on that ship. So that was yeah, a beautiful mm-hmm. thing, and yeah. And now you have been with Orphan and... So it's Orphan Relief and Rescue, and we've been, yeah, 2007 is when we um, founded that organization, and we've been, yeah, doing this now for eight years. We started um, with a team from the West. We established our office in Liberia first and really worked with the social welfare office after the 14 years civil war they had 10 orphanages before the war and 145 came into existence after the civil war so we had come on the ground just a year and a half after that civil war and the government did not know what to do with all these 145 orphanages and many orphanage directors started orphanages just to have a business, to um, bring kids in so that they could, you know, try to solicit funds from America. And, of course, nothing ever reaches the kids. It just goes into the pocket yeah. of these, you know, exploiting directors. Yeah, they didn't have the right heart. Yes. So we, 
um, we worked with the social welfare office, um, sit on their um, accreditation task force that accredits orphanages according to if they're healthy or not. And, um, and so we, yeah, just have been empowering the government to close down the bad orphanage directors and um, help the good ones so that they can get certified and, and healthy and sanitary. And, um, and now we're helping kids as they age out of these healthy orphanages. Um, we're helping them on our scholarship program through our Greater Opportunity Program, helping them um, through school, junior high, high school, and university. And we have a strong discipleship program, mentoring and discipling them, and just, yeah, seeing just incredible fruit from these kids that, yeah, just are being raised to love God with all their heart and be healthy citizens in society. And, yeah, so that's been a beautiful thing. And then yeah, and in... Go on, sorry. I was just going to say, especially when you were saying that they're death rate, you know, making it just to five years old. And, yeah, uh, yeah. And some definitely. of these, they weren't even surviving. Now they're surviving. You're getting them educated. Yeah. When do they leave the orphanage? Because you just mentioned leaving the orphanage, and then you're getting them to another program as far as yeah. junior high, high school and college. Do they leave when they're in junior high? So they are. They, they technically can live there until they're 18, but some of these kids, they're not even in junior high at 18. So it's, you know, it, the kids can stay there if, if they're under 18 in junior high and high school. But, um, yeah, we're just basically, the Greater Opportunity Program, they have to pay school fees and all that. So we're just making sure that they stay in school by paying their school fees, getting them their uniforms, and and then, you know, keeping them on our discipleship and mentorship programs so they can remain healthy and grow healthy. But if they are, in, let's say, in junior high at, you know, 19 years old, then we are kind of seeing, like, how far should we go with just encouraging them into a trade instead of finishing, you know, high school. Um, so it's kind of walking the tightrope right now because they all want to graduate from high school. But that would mean they would be 25 years old, you know, as a senior. How, and come, how come so late? So during that 14 years Civil War, nobody went to school. So that it was, too. yeah, so those kids, and then when they started to go to school, their academic level was nothing. A lot of them had just been running around in the streets. Some of them were, you know, child soldiers. So education-wise, it's just now starting to step up education-wise in these public schools. But, yeah, they when they test, you know, for the state test, if they don't pass, then they have to redo their grade again. And a lot of these kids just aren't getting the grade to pass to the next level. So, yeah, they could be 19, 20 years old, and they're still in, you know, 6th and 7th grade. And I so, see. yeah, it's, it's interesting. So it's going to be a lot of... Um, these next five years basically are, you know, we're going to have a lot of trying to figure trade school stuff out for a lot of these older kids that you just don't Is there any the uh, mold. training program inside the orphanage or do they all go outside to school? 
So elementary school, most of the orphanages have an elementary school on campus. So that's, yeah, those are taken care of, you know, until sixth grade. Then they need to go off campus, which they have to pay school fees, you know, to do that. So that's what we do. We help them, you know, with outside. That's wonderful. And now you're residing in Washington, Yes, we are in Seattle, Washington, and um, in Benin, you know, we have an orphanage safe home there in Benin where we've rescued 65 kids from domestic slavery as well as, you know, it's a safe home. So if kids have, you know, watched their parents be murdered or some other circumstances, um, we have that orphanage safe home that we've had for six years there as well as we are now working in the villages in the largest child trafficking hub areas. And we've rescued 254 kids over the last two years from being sold to the border of Nigeria. And it's just crazy, crazy rescue missions that are going on um, in Benin. And that's just kind of an experiment that we started two years ago that actually worked. How do you guys find these children and rescue them? um, That'll be in my next book, but I'll tell you (laughs) verbally. Yes, 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 yes. (laughs) Are you working on your next book, huh? Yes, yes. So we have a judge friend there in Benin. He's he's been in Wa, and he was rescuing kids from the border of Nigeria. He would be called to the border to rescue, you know, 16 kids at one time and 12 kids another time. And so him and I meet, every time I go, I would meet with him just in friendship. And he would tell me these stories. And his thing is he wanted us to build another safe home in Benin. He would say, I rescued 16 kids today and I had nowhere to put them and I had to take them back to the parents that were selling them in the first place. And they were just little kids and... And so he kept saying, please, 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 just start another orphanage and, you know, safe home so I can bring these kids to you. And after, you know, hearing this for a couple of years, I'm like, I, I said, there is no way that we could build enough safe homes to manage all the kids that you're rescuing. And then checking with the U.S. State Department, they said 40,000 children a year are exported out of Benin. And it was like that, you know, you would have to have thousands of safe homes so I was talking with um, our pastor friend who's our translator. He had been my translator for five years. And I said, what is the answer to this trafficking thing? And as we were driving in the taxi, I said, you know, it was just a, an aha moment. And it was like, it's Jesus. Jesus has got to get into these villages, you know. And so as we were processing the next time I visited the the judge, he kept asking the same thing. And as he was talking, he said, all right, Rebecca, if you're not going to build another safe home, then just get your people in there. Get your people in these villages and figure out how to curve selling these children. Because this is is out of hand, the amount of children that I'm trying to rescue. So as he was talking, I had, you know, a translator in between so I could kind of hear God's voice in between. And I felt like the Lord said, you have your anti-trafficking team. It's your translators. I had four translators with me all the time. 
and they were all pastors and um, the Lord was like, you have your anti-trafficking team. So I said, okay, I'll, you know, pray about it. So that night the Lord just formulated a plan in my mind of putting this team together and paying them, you know, just a little bit each month, getting them a motorbike so they can go into these areas. And, and um, so the plan was for them to just friendship build for six months to just go in um, twice to three times a week for a few hours each time and just learn everything that there was to learn about why these parents traffic their kids, who's the traffickers, um, how much they sell them for, where they're selling them, and how they can be rescued. And after the six months, oh, and the other thing is they couldn't mention that they were pastors and they couldn't bring their Bible. And because it's the whole witchcraft thing, they're terrified of Christians and they don't even want you to pray for them because they, they, they say it's going to mess with their juju. And so I just thought the most non-threatening thing would just be these people just going in and, you know, just being friends with them. So they did that for six months, and the judge had put a document together making it official business that they could go and officially do research in the community is how he put it. And so the the community didn't know anything except for they had the judge's approval that this, you know, team could do research. So after six months, they called me and they said, Rebecca, we know the next um, 40 kids that are going to be trafficked. And they said they're going to be sold for $20 each. And if we don't save them, these kids are lost. And I said, well, how can we save them? And they said, yeah, $20 each. So I said, how can we save them? And they said, if we put them into school and we buy them a uniform, backpack, school supplies, and, and put them on a feeding program, then we can rescue these kids. And I said, okay, let's do it. So I wired them money to get them all in their school uniforms and backpacks, school supplies, and on a feeding program. And, um, yeah, then the next year it was 160 kids that were going to be sold. So we rescued the 160, and then we implemented a microloan program for the parents that were selling these kids because their excuse was they couldn't feed their kids, so they had to sell them. And um, so at this, um, to get a microloan, they have to come to mandatory meetings once a week. And at those meetings, they learn about um, business as well as they learn about God, a God who created them, who loves them, who values life. And we are seeing huge revival happen through this microfinance program. And, yeah, just all these ladies coming to know the Lord and huge um, value systems changed and just the value for life that they didn't have for their kids, they now have. So and so now I, these kids can stay home too? So we keep those kids, yeah, um, we keep those kids at home unless they're at risk of the parent and you know, selling them again. But they also, the parents sign a contract with us saying that if we help them, the parent will not traffic them. And if they do, they'll be in breach of contract, which is illegal. And so we have the mayor sign the contract, and then the parent signs these contracts. And these parents, every single one of them has signed it. So, so it's kind of like locked in stone. They're afraid to, you know, go back on the contract. 
as well as now they're getting these micro you know, finance loans and they're starting their businesses. And so in June, we started asking for testimonies. You know, we wanted to hear from these ladies of how this has affected their life and helped them. And, you know, the first lady that stood up, she said, Tim and Rebecca, she said, our only business in this village was selling our children. And now we don't have to sell our children anymore because you're helping us with all of this. And she pointed to all the ladies that had brought their baskets of consumables that they're selling. And I literally stopped her from talking and I said to my translator, can you repeat what she just said? Did she just admit that their only business was selling their children here? And he said, yes, Rebecca, this is just the area where we're at. This is what they did. And I was like, oh, my gosh, the magnitude of what we're a part of just floored me. And I just started bawling, just crying like a baby. (laughs) I was like, oh, my gosh, crazy. And they just needed some buddy to help show them how to do something, give them, a, give them an opportunity to yep. Uh, yep. see that that, was, that wasn't the, uh, that wasn't the answer. It, the answer was just some opportunity other than selling their children that the Lord just showed you. And does it seem like there was no way that this would have happened unless you built the relationships first to talk to them, the trust? Yes. Yeah, they would not have, you know, learned all that they learned um, with with mentioning, you know, that they were even pastors or anything about God because the villagers are all terrified of that because they, you know, they think it'll mess with their witchcraft, which it will, of course. But once <laughs> Thank the friendships you, were... Yeah, once the friendships were established beforehand, and then we helped, we started helping get their kids into school and on the feeding program and helping the parents with microloans, then the whole Jesus thing was implemented of, you know, this is, you know, we we started saying, okay, now we can tell you that all four of these people are pastors, and if you need prayer for anything, you can come to them. And it was just this whole other thing that happened that, yeah, it was non-threatening then because they had already yes. established friendship. And, and trust. Yeah. And trust, yes. And that they were showing that there's no, there's no ulterior motive except to see these kids help. And what was interesting as well is these parents basically forbade our anti-trafficking team to ever pray with them or the children once they knew they were pastors. And the pastors just respected it and said, that's fine. But now two years later, as these women are coming to Christ and this whole culture of trafficking has changed, the women are literally saying, we want you to pray with our children and we need you to pray with our children. And Mm -hmm it's this whole culture change. And so the pastors are saying, this is huge, Rebecca, because they literally would not let us pray with them. And now they're begging us to pray for and with their children. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is so, this is only huge. Yeah. That's a big tool too, because that could tell even other folks that, hey, 
just be patient. Just just yeah. walk Christ out in front of them. Just be patient. Just yeah. just look at people and and let God move upon their heart because eventually it, it will happen. Yep. yep. You know, For we sure. don't have to shove uh, shove it down their throats. That eventually yep. they're going to see the goodness of God and the favor of God and the love of God and they'll want it. And like they yes. did, they asked you. Please, yeah. yes, now pray for us. <laughs> now that we can see. Yes. Yeah, in fact, I told the pastors, it was funny, because when they first, when I told them, you know, you can't bring your Bibles, you can't tell me your pastors, for six months you're just building friendship, and I don't want them to know anything about, you know, that you're a Christian. And I said, you're on a secret mission. And they're like, a secret mission? Ooh, this is exciting. We've never been on a secret mission before. <laughs> and I said, yes. And I said, but then I said, what our, our ultimate secret mission is, is we want to plant churches and we want Jesus to go all through this place. And we want them to beg us for Jesus. And that's exactly what's happening now. So these pastors are starting. So we had the first church planted um, one of the pastors planted his church in one of the areas um, where we rescued the kids. And then now we're going to be doing these community centers as well for the kids to come and be discipled and and stuff. And, and of course, with the parents begging us to pray with their kids, it's just, it's beautiful. I said, oh, my goodness, they're literally begging us for Jesus. You know, the so light just cool. went on. Uh, I didn't even <laughs> think about it, that you... The Lord said that there were that your team was right there, the four pastors. Yeah. And are these going to be the four that you're going to plant these four churches? All these. Are so the pastors? pastors yeah, we're yeah we're allowing the pastors to plant churches if they you know feel that God wants them to. So one has already planted a church, and That's awesome. um, yeah, so it's just one of many that are going to be. Coming into existence, yeah, very cool. Well, it is Sweet. kind of fun to hear that you're going to come out with another book. Any any idea yeah. what time frame? I don't know. Um, I'm hoping within the year that I have it complete. And, um, yeah, I'm kind of wrestling with either doing another book the same size as the Inspired to Action or maybe doing a couple different, um, one smaller that's, um, yeah, basically ultimate living, how your ordinary life can make an extraordinary difference is one of the titles I'm wrestling with of um, having a, you know, a book on that as well as I've got a devotional too that I want to put... Uh, it's almost done, but it's just a 30-day devotional. Just getting people excited to live it out. <laughs> now, um, I don't know how I can finish with this, but just, again, want to tell the listeners out there that it was only because you said yes hmm. that God put you oh. in unusual situations to do extraordinary exploits mm-hmm. for God and just to make difference in a huge amount of people's lives and families' yeah. lives because it's not just the kids. 
or the yeah. kids. It's their family that's connected because when they get uh, a quality of life, nurturing, not just food-wise, yeah. but nurturing that they're valuable, nurturing that um, here's education, here's uh, here's everything you need. Well, they took that back to their family, and now I'm sure that will just affect, yeah. I mean, grandparents, parents, aunts, uncles, cousins. Yeah. yeah. Who knows? It's limitless. Who knows? Yeah, but so true. Two, what would you say to uh, just an ordinary mother out there or, or somebody that wants to really make a huge difference in life and doesn't even know where to start? Yeah, for me, the biggest challenge to me was when I read the Intercessory book by Dutch Sheets, which is probably 15 years old. But um, it was just the whole um, thing that as God prompts our hearts, you know, to pray or to physically act on something that God is wanting us to do, And as we walk forward in those promptings, you know, God wants to accomplish his perfect will through our life. And he needs the human conduit to make those things happen. So as God's prompting our heart, if he's prompting our heart, it's because he wants to accomplish his perfect will through us. But it takes us literally physically and, you know, practically stepping out to implement those things that he's asking us to do. And, you know, a lot of people ask, how do you know it's God, you know, it's that. And I always tell people that if it's something that um, he's, he's encouraging you to do, usually it's something that is a gnawing feeling that's not going away. It's something you wake up in the morning with and you know you're supposed to do it. It's that agitated stomach feeling that, you know, you get a queasy stomach if you um, are fighting against doing what, you know, you know you probably should do. As well as, you know, I say always go to the scripture. If it, you know, aligns with the, what the scriptures are saying, then it's, it's usually God. And then the other thing is if it disrupts your normal routine. And I always give God permission to wake me up at night if I'm not doing what he's asking of me and wanting me to, to do or implement or pray for. And, you know, the biggest thing that we, that I've learned over these last years is that as I've walked out in these acts of obedience of what he's asked of me, just in the smallest to the biggest things, but it starts with the small, and as I've stepped out and done what he's asked me to do, that's when the miracles happen. That's when the crazy God moments happen and the divine appointments. And, you know, none of it is ever comfortable. If anybody's looking for comfort in following the Lord, it's not going to happen if it's truly the Lord. It's always uncomfortable, and that's the other barometer that I use to <laughs> identify if it's the Lord. Because if it's comfortable, it's probably not the Lord. And it's going to cost us something. And if we're willing to pay the price of our time, our resources, um, being uncomfortable, if we're willing to do those things, then we will see God move in mighty, mighty ways through our life. And we will reap the benefits of this beautiful, amazing partnership that we were born to do in partnership with the Lord. And it's just, it's an incredible, amazing life to live. So that's really, you know, my encouragement to 
to moms or to just anyone who is following the Lord is just really listen to those um, those promptings from the Lord. You know, that's that's God wanting to accomplish His will through your life. So, well, thank that you. Is it. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very, very much. Uh-huh. Um, thank you, too. Blessings. Uh, let's see. Oh, I'll be sure to post your um, website okay. and stuff on our web. So anybody okay. that wants to get in contact with you, wants to ask questions, or or donate, because a lot of people do want to donate to things like this, but they don't know who to trust or mm-hmm. what, they're, what they're really doing with, with the finances, yep. you know. And yep. you'll find we hear a lot of uh, stories today that are not always good, but yep. uh, it's nice to hear ones that are really implementing mm-hmm. uh, good things. With it, so I'll be sure to post that, post all of that on the website so people can click on it and find you, or if okay. they want you to come speak, and so forth like that. Sweet. Sounds well, great. I just want to say thank you again for coming on mm-hmm. and telling your story, your beautiful yes. story. Thank and you. I pray that uh, blessings and on to you and your family and everything, of course that. God has for you to do. Thank and you maybe, so much. You know, I'll look forward to your next book. Okay. <laughs> Sounds great. All right. Well, that's All the right. last. And ciao for now. Mm-hmm.